Howdy, riders. Welcome back to Ride Between the Wines, virtual edition. I gotta be honest, I feel like every single episode I say, man, this is the best episode I've done yet. But golly, it's hard not to say that today. Um, I got to speak with Matt Fowles uh, in Victoria, Australia, uh, owner of the Fowles Winery, winemaker. Such a cool, interesting, geeky, whiny sort of guy. And um, I've only met him in real life once, and it was such a pleasure to reconnect with him. So I hope you enjoy that. His wines are amazing. A little later in the episode, I'm going to be speaking with Christian Niemi, talking about his reopening efforts, um, owner of Black Rooster, Bourbon, um, FT2, F2T Productions, Charitable Plate, uh, Honey River Catering, Jeez Louise, Christian does a lot. Um, so, uh, great episode. Buckle up. Let's ride. The world we live in is an amazing one, full of passion, wonderment, and of course, fine wine. This is the story of one man's journey to fully understand and appreciate that world. So kick the tires and light the fires. It's time to ride between the wines. It's Burgundian in style. Just a whisper of cherry. Very nice legs. This is so perfectly balanced. Such an old world style. Is this laced with tobacco? A total fruit bomb. I say, say, Ponzi! <laughs> G'day. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Mate, I've got beard envy. Look at you. <laughs> That's all right. I got hair envy. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> how you doing, brother? Long I'm time. Doing, I know. I'm doing well. How, how are things down there? Uh, kind of mixed, you know, we're, we're going okay, so I feel very grateful for that, but um, the whole of Melbourne is locked down with curfews at the moment, um, so pretty severe um, response to the second, wa a second wave that we got, so uh, the rest of the country is running free, so we're feeling you know, kind of upset, and of course a lot of our customers live in Melbourne, so uh, it's kind of lonely here. I got... My beautiful restaurant all <laughs> empty, which is kind of frustrating. But anyway, so it goes. Fair enough. I'm, we're in good health and reasonable spirits. You're, you're not that far from Melbourne, are you? No, about an hour and a half. I, I said, but you guys are COVID-free or in much better shape than Melbourne just an hour and a half away? Exactly. So, yeah, most of regional Victoria has zero cases. Um, and Melbourne flared up, you know, very quickly as this thing can do. And then, uh, yeah, we've taken, we've tried, we tried suppression, we lost control and then, uh, they shut us down really hard. Mm -hmm. So hopefully by the middle of September, we'll open up again and then we'll try and limp along, uh, into Christmas and stuff. Well, good luck. Same over here. I'm hoping for Christmas, <laughs> but Thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, super exciting. I can easily say that you're my first Zoom podcast from Australia. And I want to say first one from south of the equator, uh, at right. least over the Zoom. I, I, I know I've had um, a couple of fellows from Mendoza in the car back when I was still doing car stuff. But, but you got to be my only south of the equator and definitely only Australia. So very exciting. Thank you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll just, um, I got both wines, very excited about them. Um, but really, if you could just 
kind of start off and, and tell me your story, which is, which is a very cool story in general to me. And then after that, maybe we can talk a little bit Australia and, and then definitely do the wines. Well, and you'll forgive me, I'll just sip away the coffee for now. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah. So for everybody at home, um, it is 7, no, it's 7 p.m. here and it's 9 a.m. there. Is that correct? Yeah. Which is why yeah. I, I, I freaked out towards the end of this because I'm so used to the time of the day that I film these. So I've moved to every side of the house to find some lighting because usually I'm doing it right in this perfect spot with the natural light. And so now I'm hoping that it looks okay. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. You're so happy Friday to you, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so, um, so Matt Fowles of Fowles Winery, um, uh, Australia, again, uh, there's, there's two different skews of your wines that, that I'm privy to in South Carolina, which are the farm to table wines we'll talk about. And then the ladies that shoot their lunch which is fantastic. But, uh, but I'm just going to get started, Matt. Tell me, tell me how you got here. Yeah, so look, I, mine was a circuitous route. <clears throat> we come from, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a long line of farmers. And, uh, you know, as is the case with farms sometimes, each generation, they kind of get smaller and smaller and um, <clears throat> farming families trying to make it work. So by the time we got to my folks, uh, there was no farm and we ended up in the city. And, uh, but uh, my father in particular and I, as soon as we had the opportunity, uh, we got out of the city straight back up to the country. So. Mum and dad are sheep farmers um, up uh, about 20 uh, kilometres north of us. And then uh, I was an attorney and then I, I left in a, with a big American law firm, actually. And then I left there as soon as I could. I got out early and uh, uh, dove into the wine industry, which, you know, from a very young age, um, you know, I was that kid outside catching bugs and running around the bush, as we call it here in Australia. And uh, you know, I just wasn't made to be in buildings. So, um, and that sort of was just a part of me. I don't know why I got that. But, uh, you know, so my interest was in agriculture always. And wine is just such a beautiful agricultural product. And really at the age of about 15 or 16, uh, it really captured my imagination. So, you know, even at that age, uh, I would, my dad would uh, kind of sneak me into wine shows and uh, I was a big tall kid. So I was, you know, able to get in there. And just learn and learn about it and um and it really captured my imagination so uh it it bit me hard and then you know i got distracted with law um and then uh and then was able to sort of dive in up in this area the strathbogie ranges north of melbourne and that's where our family uh near to where our family is uh, farmed historically so uh it was an awesome opportunity to reconnect with regions did you so were you already married before you made that move? Uh, no, sir. In fact, my wife was right. And then my wife was, uh, she was doing the professional thing as well. So she's a graphic designer and she was working for, you know, a massive uh, global agency. And, you know, as professional couples, I guess that it's sort of, uh, you know, it's kind of cliched, I guess, you know, you, you think about, well, the, the work, yeah, it can be interesting, but it, it also kind of mundane that office environment. So, uh, you know, our dream was to travel to New York and work over there or London and work over there to kind of make it interesting. So anyway, I, I you know, I wasn't enjoying law. I was capable of it, but you know, it didn't, I didn't love it in the way I loved agriculture. And, uh, and so one night my father actually, there was this beautiful winery up in the region that we're uh, from that fell on hard times. And he, he just shot me this note with the ad for the winery. 
And, you know, I was like, yeah, this is it. You know, I, I, I can tell this, is, we, we gotta go, we gotta get busy. And, uh, and then I went home to my then girlfriend and uh, said, hey, you know, honey, I, you know, forget New York, forget London, let's go to Avenal. And Avenal at the time was 700 people and it's not much more than that now. Uh -huh. But, uh, and so she was uh, a bit bewildered as you can imagine, but, uh, but um, we did it. She's now my wife. So, you know, I got something right. And, uh, and uh, look, she's uh, kind of built the same way as me, you know, outdoors, family first uh, kind of stuff. So um, we, we did the big shift early. Well, I know we haven't told your, your whole story in your line, but the whole idea of that sounds kind of amazing to me, you know, outdoors, hunting, fishing, and just very, very small town with you and the family. I mean, that's, and, and wine, of course. I mean, yeah, I think, I think you did it right. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, it's, it's been a massive learning curve because I wasn't sort of cla classically trained in the wine industry. I wasn't born to it like a lot of people are. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty uh, interesting early. And then when I walked up here, uh, when I got up here, uh, Mother Nature decided to kick the shit out of me for uh, four vintages. So um, you know, that was pretty interesting too. We had bushfires and drought. And by year four, you know, we were very close to not making it work. And there was, there was some pretty, uh, pretty um, confronting times. But then from 2010, we got, we got a classic vintage. It was a beautiful, cool vintage, you know, 35 degrees Celsius every day, uh, cool nights, blue skies. And from then on, we had a run from 2010 through to really now, uh, we've had um, really, really solid vintages, some better than others, but mostly beautiful. So we're, we're, uh, we're doing okay, it's good. Can, can you speak a little bit to, so, so you're in Victoria, it would be the, the wine region, I guess, that you're in. Can you speak a little bit to, uh, in general, what a growing season is there? You know, is your huge diurnal shift or is it generally cool or, you know, a little bit about that? Yeah, so to put it in context overall, you know, Australia is a vast land. It's as big as the United States. So um, people, people tend to think of us as beaches and bikinis, but... Uh, you know, there's this huge, it's like comparing LA to New York. I mean, there's just, it's just a gulf. There's, it's vast land. And, uh, you know, Western Australian uh, wines uh, often near the coast, they have maritime influence. Uh, South Australian, you know, also some coastal uh, regions, but generally, you know, hundreds of kilometres north of Victoria. So, you know, uh, a warmer climate overall. And then Victoria is in this bottom southeast corner and generally much cooler. Uh, Victoria and Tasmania are kind of right down there together. So, um, and also in Victoria, you know, uh, our regions, we have a lot of them. They're sort of very chopped up. Uh, so we're the sort of largest boutique state, if that makes sense. Okay. A lot of different uh, terroir and so on. So, and then if I did a split within Victoria, there's kind of the we've got this mountain range called the Great Dividing Range that sweeps right up the eastern um, uh, seaboard. So it'd be like a set of mountains stretching from Texas through to uh, Northern Virginia, say. And in Victoria, those uh, regions that are south of the, of the mountain have, have some maritime influence. So regions like Mornington Peninsula or Yarra Valley. 
And then those to the north have more desert-like climate. So you use the term diurnal shift. That is, that is absolutely what we experience here. So um, we're north of the divide uh, and we're elevated. So about 500 meters above sea level. Okay. And so we'll, we'll get uh, flurries of snow in winter. So in, in the growing season, you know, we could, I'll be t-shirt and shorts in the vineyard, uh, you know, sweaty and uncomfortable. And then uh, by night, you know, it's jacket on, uh, pants on, because it's cool enough that, you know, and that's kind of a real a physical example of what it's like. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, and, and look, there's other features of our region in particular, being on a mountain top. It's actually a granite, a granite peninsula. So we sit at the crest of this massive, well, it's actually called a massive, but massive uh, granite peninsula. And our uh, vineyards are on the top. And so we get uh, weather coming from the west, hitting our hills and speeding up. And so we, it's quite a, a windy environment, which is good because it doesn't let frost settle, very, very low disease pressure, uh, being north of the divide without maritime influence, it's very dry. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually a very kind region to grow grapes. The only problem with the wind is uh, fruit set. And sometimes we get, uh, you know, that first week of December is when that happens for us. And sometimes we get um, poor fruit set. But otherwise, it's actually a very uh, good place to grow grapes. The other feature being the ancient soil. So mm -hmm. 440 million year old soil, rocks uh, strewn throughout it, granite, granite boulders everywhere, and uh, really nutrient poor. So these vines, you know, really work hard. Uh, to grow a canopy, uh, produce fruit. Mm -hmm. And as you would know, the, the, um, when a vine struggles, it's put its effort into its survival, which is the grapes and the seed. Uh, and so that's where we get uh, the beautiful fruit. So is, the, are, is everything, all, all the vines that you're getting from on American rootstock or is it on vinifera? Because I know that there's places in Australia that are still... I don't know if that's more uh, west, but there uh, actually it's in our vineyard where we're split, and uh, we are in a phylloxera region, so okay. we're migrating migrating to American rootstock in South Australia and other parts of Australia. They're mostly own own roots, but uh, we will move to fully um, American rootstock in probably the next over the next ten years or so. So um, within your region, are the varietals that I'm getting pretty much the varietals that work there? Have you, have you tried some varietals that are varieties that suck or? Yeah, yeah, well look, uh, Vidello didn't work for us, but, uh, but that's also a marketing issue. The, because, because of where we are, because we are north of this great dividing range, very stable climate uh, and that large diurnal shift, we've got this, we're sort of in this strange pocket which allows us to grow a, a huge variety, uh, really the full spectrum. Uh -huh. So we're growing everything from uh, Riesling through to Mavedra. Uh, you know, Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris, uh, Chardonnay, and then, you know, Shiraz, Cabernet, Pinot, Sangiovese, Arnais, Vermentino. So we have Arnais. this really... Wow. Arnais. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, when we planted, I really love Arnais, and when we planted it, it was the largest planting of uh, Arnais in Australia, which which means nothing because, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, right. There's not, there's not that many plantings, but 
the thing that I'm probably most interested, rather a lot of our um, regions in Victoria were settled by um, uh, new migrants to Australia, a lot of Italian families, one area to the north in particular. And because of that, there's a lot of experiment experimentation with, um, uh, with Italian bridles. But, and so we, we have done that, Anais, Vermentino, Sangiovese, um, and it's getting a following in Australia, but you know, I'm, my heritage isn't Italian and it's not a particular, particular uh, focus for us. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I'm interested in is the consumption trends actually in food I find really interesting. You know, you think back uh, 10 years and the, the nature of cuisine has shifted actually dramatically to this lighter, fresher style. You know, and you think back 10 years ago, uh, people were wearing normal clothes. Now they're wearing active wear. You know, the people want to live lighter, live freer. Uh -huh. And I think the same trends are showing up in wine. So, you know, our style, I've, I'm obsessed with food. That's my lead passion, if you like. Um, and so my interest is wines that are fit for food. And so we're actually pushing down this path of uh, lighter style reds and whites, but reds in particular. So over the next, um, you know, we've, we've got a lot of Pinot Noir, uh, Sangiovese, but over the next uh, five years, you'll start seeing Tempranillo, Gamay, um, Nebbiolo. Uh, you know, there'll be a whole suite, uh, a whole suite of lighter style reds that will be really, I think, a huge part of the future. That sounds great. That's that's more the direction that I'm generally happy to drink anyway. So that's awesome. Uh, well, let's. Do you let's... think that's where? The... Oh, sorry, man. Do you okay. think that's where the American market's shifting? I don't, I don't know. Maybe I think, I think there's just different um, groups of people. Like when you, when you think of the typical American steakhouse meat and potatoes, I think there's always going to people be people who want a huge uh, Napa cab, which is fine. But I think that's, that's sort of ingrained into the American meat and potatoes. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I, I mean, for myself personally, I've, Tempranillo, Sangiovese, something like that sounds great to me. It's uh, Pinot, obviously, is the direction I want to go. So it's it's kind of hard to tell. I'm I'm horrible at trends, <laughs> and speaking for the rest of the country. Um, but what I was gonna say was, yeah, if it's not weird to you, and since you're not actually drinking with me, um, can we go backwards? Can we do the Pinot first and then the Shard? Yeah, man, let's do okay. it. Whatever you like. All right. Well, this is. Uh, well, well, you, I mean, both of your wines, which we'll talk about are a hundred percent about food and pairing. And that's the, the, the driving force behind it. Um, but the, the Pinot is, is such an easy, uh, I'm going to show the farm to table labels are perfect because there's literally um, a pig on here. So I assume that's what we're having with it and all the different labels, which I'll put up on the screen when I edit this. Um, but this, this is just a cool concept. So tell me, tell me a little bit about the, how the farm to table line came about and, and what I'm drinking in this Pinot. So the, the, when I moved up from the city, uh, you know, massive learning curve and you get confronted with all these questions of life, you know, big questions. How are you gonna do this? How are you gonna conduct uh, your life up here? And one of the things Louise and I committed to very early was sustainable farming. And so, uh, you know, partly that was born out of uh, our supermarket being a 70 kilometer round trip <laughs> and it was <laughs> know, terrible it. <laughs> at that particular supermarket. Anyway, that's a byline, but you know, we started growing our own vegetables and I've, um, 
you know, always been uh, outdoorsy, as I mentioned, but I, I really got into um, provenance. So I started slaughtering my own lambs, uh, learned to butcher lambs. And then if you think about meat, just meat for a moment, the ultimate free range is wild game. And so I got very interested in uh, ethical hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so whole, you know, whenever we hunt, we use the whole animal. And, uh, and so I got really interested in that. And in truth, that wild meat has become my, probably my lead passion, my obsession. And so, you know, I found myself like, you know, out in the wild, you'd spend uh, two days to create one meal and, you know, just obsessed with it. And what I found was I was starting to uh, uh, choose different wines. I was sorting for these styles that work well with game. And then I looked at those wines and I started to see a pattern, you know, I was looking for intensity of aroma and then quite a silky, silky structure. So that's uh, the sort of philosophy behind ladies who shoot their lunch. And then there are things we can do all the way along uh, from vineyard through to glass uh, where you can uh, push the style in that direction. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, um, it's, and I'll, we can talk more about it um, later, but in the, so I, I was obsessed with wild meat. It's very lean and dense and it plays differently on your palate to farmed meat, which mm-hmm. is softer in texture and has more fat, intramuscular fat as well. And so actually when farm meat hits your palate, you want, you need different things from the wine, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, to work well with the farm meat. So it actually was wild meat, then ladies who shoot their lunch and are you game. And then it came full circle. Well, I'm, I'm like, well, if, I can, if I've got wines that work well with wild meat, surely I can find uh, and make wines that work well with, better with farm meat. Mm-hmm. So look, generally speaking, it's uh, freshness of acid, super important. Um, and I feel like that's like the highlighter, we call them highlighters. Do you call them highlighters? Highlighter pen when you're, yeah. you know, highlight, yeah, right. Uh, it's like the gastronomic equivalent of a highlighter acid. You know, you, it, it just brings out ingredients and obviously refreshes your palate. So that's an important feature. But because the, and, and obviously with farm meat, with more fat, acid really helps to cut through the fat. So that's a, that's a really important feature of the wine. So in general terms, they would be fresher uh, than their competitive set, if you, mm-hmm. if you, if that makes sense. Um, and then farm meat being softer in texture can take more fruit and oak derived tannin so we they're a little more bodied than um than say the ladies who shoot their lunch so uh but the pinot in particular so i told you about the region and we sit on this uh top of this escarpment and one of the things that's remarkable about the strathbogie ranges because it is so ancient it's really weathered back to to bedrock and, you know, you'll be walking through any part of the, the vin- two vineyards and, you know, there's rock at the surface. Like this is vines cling- clinging onto the top of a rocky hill, basically. Mm-hmm. Something like you'd imagine in Greece um, or Mediterranean. So, uh, and because the, it is weathered back to bedrock, the soils are actually remarkably even across the whole vineyard, all ancient decomposed granite. Uh, quite a sandy loam, nutrient poor, and sheets water very easily. Um, and because of that, a lot of pa- a lot of regions around the wor- world talk about this patch of soil being great for this variety, or this patch of soil being great for this variety. In our region, it's not so much the case. So what becomes more important in our region is actually aspect. 
And because we sit on top of this mountain range and the, the, the land pitches in all different directions, we, uh, the way we plant the, the blocks is more about aspect and then clonal uh, diversity. So for example, with Shiraz, we have five different clones now uh, that we're working with and that helps bring the complexity into the wine. But in the case of this Pinot, farm to table. So this is grown uh, predominantly on our Billy's vineyard, which is the south facing vineyard. So it's on the southeastern side of that, uh, the escarpment. Uh, and so it's this side, that side of the escarpment's better for whites and Pinot generally. And because of the nutrient poor soil, no matter what we do, uh, we can't crop really more than three tonnes the acre or eight tonnes the hectare, which is really very, very low. And then in the case of Pinot, we've taken it back a little bit more again. So, you know, one trial that we did early on, it was literally one bunch per cane. So, you know, not yeah. at all a lot. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> trying to, yeah, trying to see what Pinot could do. And um, Pinot is an interesting one up our way. Uh, so I think uh, a, a lot of Pinot is grown in these uh, super marginal climates, obviously in the US, um, pushing up in the north uh, west, and then uh, in our um, part of the world, the southeast. And, uh, and it seems in those marginal climates to unlock another dimension, you know, that, that funk and that complexity in the barnyardy, you know, all that mm -hmm. beautiful secondary characters. Uh, in our case, we're more primary. So we get more of the primary fruit expression, strawberries and cherries. And it's very consistent in our region. Whereas in some of those more marginal regions, you know, you can, they call it heartache. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, you, you write into your plan, one in five years is going to fail. We don't, we don't have that experience. But what we have to do is really manage our yield down to make sure we're getting that true varietal character which I hope, you know, I hope you see in that wine. So, oh, absolutely. yeah. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, so you, you really mentioned how you, um, how, how you're stressing with the farm to table wines, the freshness, which it absolutely, I mean, I just popped it. Um, what does that say for the ageability? Is this definitely something I want to drink today? Well, I, usually when I, I, uh, see higher acid wines, you know, I think generally they, they age really well. So, um, but, you know, I, I, we deliberately make it in this fresh style. Uh, so, you know, if you were to mature it, you go for your life, it'll age, it'll age well, but, you know, we, we want all that primary, all that fresh to work well with, uh, with the food. So, you know, although it has the uh, capacity to age, you know, we're deliberately making that style so it'll work well with food. The other thing, and so drinking it now is totally fine by me too. Um, the other thing is, uh, um, I've, when I was, I lived in the States for a year uh, to connect with the RNDC and, and guys like you. And um, the thing I noticed, I was benchmarking US Pinot <clears throat> and some, well, generally actually, it's made in a bigger style to what we make here. And I learned from some winemaker buddies over there that sometimes they'll be cut with, uh, you know, varieties like Syrah, Shiraz, um, and so on. Whereas for us, you know, for me, uh, I th and sorry, going back a step, I think winemakers are doing that because those bigger styles can be very appealing, obviously, and that juicy fruit thing. But for me, Pinot is beautiful because of um, the lightness of it, you know, light and powerful. It's 
Uh, and so we have, it's a, ours are a hundred percent Pinot. We don't blend anything. I love seeing the color of that wine, you know, light and transparent, uh, you know, that, that beautiful bright red and, uh, and, you know, it's clearly a lighter bodied style and, you know, as I believe it should be, mm -hmm. but also that, that lighter style with fresher acid is going to work really well with food. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had it with food. It's great. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I do want to get into the Chardonnay, but I actually want to ask you um, another question on a wine we're not drinking tonight. But you, you mentioned Riesling. Uh, and I know that at this point, I, I think Australia is very well known for Riesling. I, I would think so. Um, but specifically, it's the regions I think of are a little further west. What what is the Riesling you're producing stylistically? Like, what are you going for and what do you find to be indicative of it? Well, I think you're right as a general comment, you know, South Australia, perhaps Western Australia are better known for Riesling, but, it, um, but it's actually our lead uh, white, you know, it's the white that we've been most awarded for. Um, so, you know, very capable of um, making Riesling in Victoria as well, as you'd expect with a cooler climate. But as a, as, a, as a like sort of step back context point, uh, you know, if Germany's known for sweet uh, Riesling and that's being challenged now by a lot of young folks over there, right. uh, Australia's yeah. known for dry Riesling. So we make it in like teeth aching acid, fresh stainless steel, bone dry. You know, this is uh, high acid, um, you know, fresh racy uh, and it's really, really pure. Um, so when people are tasting Australian Riesling, you know, I'll do it at a trade show and, uh, oh no, you know, the typical response is I don't drink Riesling and it's, it's usually about, um, the sweetness, the sweetness and of yeah. course, right. And so people are shocked, but you know, in terms of our Riesling, I think one of the things we get because it is nutrient poor region and those vines are really, really working hard across the board, we get this, uh, intensity. Um, and it's an, it's not, it's not heaviness, it's just intensity. And I know it's a ridiculous, uh, example, but I've come to say it because it seems to make sense to people. So bear with me for a moment. But if you take a male ballerina, right? And a male cage fighter and you strip them down to their briefs and you look at them, they basically look the same. You know, they're ripped, they're Very strong. Muscular. Right? Mm -hmm. You throw those clothes back on them and you let them practice their art form and they manifest completely differently. Our wines are like the male ballerina. You know, there is no question that they're powerful and, uh, you know, capable and strong, uh, but they're, they're light and dainty and restrained as well and elegant and graceful. So in, it's a, Perhaps a silly way of answering your question. That's an but, amazing description. Uh, I love that example. <laughs> so, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes wines are impressive for power and just raw strength and extraction and whatever. That's not us. Our wines are restrained and elegant. Uh, and so our Riesling is a style that's lovely lifted aromatics. You know, we get the best out of the, um, uh, the Riesling variety in terms of aroma. So supercharged aroma. And then... Yeah, just lovely um, straight lines, if you like, uh, with Riesling. So we actually make two styles at our place. So we have the classic Australian style, crush it, rip it off skins, 
uh, straight into stainless steel, fresh, racy, lean, lovely. And then in our case, with ladies who shoot their lunch, matching to wild game, which is dry and challenging to your palate, you want some more lusciousness. So we'll give it uh, time in uh, oak on yeast lees, big, and when I say oak, I mean 5,000 litre oak casks. Uh, we'll give some, you know, maybe uh, eight weeks of lees contacts. We might have a little RS uh, hanging in there to build out the middle. Uh, we'll sometimes blend other varieties into it. Gewurz has been one I've loved to do in the past. So just leaving that a bit more uh, body and weight, I suppose, more Alsatian in style. Mm -hmm. uh, not common in Australia, but uh, that's the way we make it for uh, a wine to match with wild game. So, but one of the things that's happening in Australia, you know, and I don't know whether to think it, it's just happening, so I have to accept it. But all the, a lot of the cool kids are making the German style Riesling again. So it's really cool at the moment to have this high RS. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's great because, you know, who, who doesn't love those wines? They're delicious and beautiful. But at the same time, we're in this funny thing where Australia was starting to get to know, known for this dry Riesling style, uh, internationally known. Right. And now we're confu confusing the population. <laughs> it's like, oh, we were so close. Because, you know, it, from my point of view, the wine industry, all the winemakers in Australia drink Riesling. You know, it's the best value. It's a stunning variety. It's a, it's a wonderful food wine. Uh, we... we drink you know it might be i'll make a ridiculous statement like 20 percent of all the drinking that a winemaker does is riesling i mean that's huge uh oh. and we find that we're in love with it but um the drinking public is confused about you know riesling as a style and and now i guess we're adding to that confusion You're adding to it but, wow. but it's a super exciting you know variety in australia it's if uh if your, your wine geeks over there, you know, really want to have some fun with Australian wine. Riesling is a great space to play. Absolutely. Yeah, I've had a lot of delicious ones. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I also agree that I have the exact same problem with a Riesling selling it to anybody ever is automatically I don't drink Riesling just because of the, the sweet factor. But I think we're beating it. So. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so uh, I w let's talk about ladies that shoot their lunch. Now, I have to confess to you that... Um, the last time that I actually met you, I don't think, actually, I don't know if I drank any of the ladies that shoot their lunch. I think I'd only had farm to table, but it wasn't until a couple of months ago that I actually cracked open a Chardonnay. I've, I've drank the other ones several times, but this Chardonnay I had in the middle of COVID this year playing board games with my wife. And I took a picture and put it on Facebook. It is one of the best Chardonnays I've ever had. It was, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, so I, I've been looking forward to this just to crack this open. I haven't had any of it yet tonight, but yeah, walk, walk me through, tell me what wild ferment is and, and why this wine stands out so much, why it's so amazing. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, for, again, for context point, you know, Australia got known for Chardonnay and when we started planting Chardonnay, it was like, oh, how do you do this? And we looked to the French and we made it, you know, big and oaky and 100% malo and, you know, all this big luscious kind of dare I say it sunshine in a bottle kind of style um, and you know we probably overdid it I'm gonna say we overdid it we, we asked too much Australia got known for this bigger bigger style we climbed the mountain and we didn't like what we saw so as a community of uh, wine makers we're, we've pulled our horns in and we're making I think a much more 
balanced style and our own style as a country, if you like. Yeah. So with this, with this uh, Chardonnay, I think balance is, you know, go back to the male ballerina, <laughs> the ballerina, you know, balance is what we're talking about here. And so the, the first thing I look to is the vineyard and we're trying to achieve full spectrum uh, flavor. So you want your, your citrus through tropical uh, and then what other layers can we build around it? And keep in mind with ladies who shoot their lunch, we're looking for a wine that uh, works with wild game. So we want that, that slightly fleshy, slippery mid palate. Mm -hmm. um, so this, this one is 100% uh, barrel fermented. Uh, we do a couple of different picks at different times uh, and to achieve that full spectrum balance. flavor and balance, exactly. So uh, acid fresh, uh, again, we want that, that freshness of acid is, is hugely important for wines that work well with food. Um, so 100% of this is barrel fermented and most of that is wild ferment. So now when I say 100% barrel fermented, people will think, oh, so it's oaky. Well, it's not oaky. So these are partly uh, 5,000 litre oak casts. You know, these are second fill, third fill French oak punchins. So generally much larger format, uh, older oak, uh, which is more about texture than oak, you know, showing up in the wine. Mm -hmm. Now, I presume you see there is oak presence, no doubt about it, but it's in check is my hope. And, you know, with malolactic, you know, it's not 80%, it's not 50%, it's more like 10 to 30%. You know, it's a, a, a lovely little layer, uh, depending on the vintage. You know, if we have a warmer uh, year and the style's more luscious anyway, we'll back the malo down. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's uh, a leaner year, we'll build the malo up to try and balance and get this slipperiness in the mid palate. But because of all the separate barrels that these are being fermented in, there's perhaps 80 separate ferments that are making up the final blend. So in terms of the winemaking, this is a super exciting wine to make. You know, we've got all these different options when we're barrel selecting and we're always selecting with that filter of food. Mm -hmm. But it just helps achieve this kind of wicked complexity that I really, really like in the wine. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's very intense, but but restrained at the same time and then complexity and balance, you know, throughout, throughout the wine. Um, you asked it, or you mentioned wild fermentation. It's something I'm super keen on. So we're generally, well, I'm a sustainable farmer. I absolutely am. And then, you know, minimum intervention is uh, our top line philosophy, if you like. And um, it pervades everything, everything we do. Um, and one of the things we've, experimented a lot with is this uh, wild fermentation. So yeast is around us all, all right now. And, uh, and I'll tell you, uh, well, we, we, and so we let the yeast that, so most wineries would uh, buy yeast in a packet, rip, tip, build the culture, and then inoculate the ferment, as you know. But, um, you know, there, there is another way and it's uh, letting the yeast that's present on the in the atmosphere around run the ferments. And when you do that, you get very uh, or less predictable results. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for winemakers, it gives us more options. Uh, some of those results aren't great and they'll get declassified uh -huh. and, and then some are mercurial and they'll get pushed towards ladies who shoot their lunch. 
but it's it's kind of an interesting space and i'm a bit geeky with this stuff but the you know i was reading about wild fermentation and there's this view that is if you introduce commercial yeast and and keep in mind you know the vast majority of the wine industry is using commercial yeast it's absolutely standard practice but uh, once you introduce that commercial yeast into the winery environment, those commercial yeasts are usually selected for a certain attribute uh, and they're very strong in that attribute. So they might be able to ferment at high alcohol or they promote primary aroma. And there's all these different yeasts you can get to do different things. It's, it's actually a remarkable field. Right. And so we um, have, have and do use uh, commercial yeast, but less and less so. And there's this view that once you introduce commercial yeast into the winery, it will dominate the natural yeast, mm -hmm. the indigenous, the wild ferments that we can do in, in the winery. So I wanted to test this idea and it wasn't exactly like a scientific study, but it was, you know, controlled enough that uh, we didn't wear the clothes that we would normally wear to the winery. We wore different clothes and we were trying to see if we could, you know, do a truly wild ferment. So what we did was we, we wanted to ferment the grapes in the field. And in Australian summer, we're not a very hot region, but in Australian summer, it's still warm. Uh, and the problem is if you, we, we chose to ferment them in these one tonne fruit bins. Uh, and the big problem with that is uh, temperature. You know, how do you control temperature? Because you need, if, it, if the... Um, ferment gets too hot, too hot yeah. it's going to kill the yeast and, and get stuck. So you could rig up chilling plates and all this sort of stuff. But I had this idea that why don't we, why don't we build a crude, you know, simple flotation uh, around the top of the bin mm -hmm. and, and drop it into our dam, we call it, a lake, awesome. uh, and, let, and let the ambient temperature of the water regulate yeah. the temperature of the ferment. So, um, you know, I'm, we're getting all excited about it. And, it, you know, we build this PVC floating. And, and so we pick all the fruit with by hand. It's on a different site. It's a tiny, tiny little vineyard near our cellar door, different site to the winery and so on. We get, we get, we hand pick all the fruit, bucket it into this tub that's the bin that's floating in the middle of the dam. And then, uh, you know, we're doing it. It's all fun. We're having a great day. Kids are running everywhere. And, you know, it's just a super, super good time. And we filled up this bin floating in the middle of the dam. And then I'm like, ah, we've got to crush it. You know, we've got to release the juice. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot five and 110 kilos. Uh, I jump in that bin, it's going under. And we didn't want the, the dam water to contaminate the. So our solution was to get a couple of strong blokes to hold the bin. And then we picked up children <laughs> and brought, <laughs> took them and drop them into the into the bin so they could crush the fruit and they had a hell of a time of course I'm sure but, but the cool thing was so we we you know it worked and it fermented dry um and it was a a you know really interesting experiment but it, it made beautiful wine and it gave me the confidence uh to you know really really lead with this minimum intervention stuff and you know some years, 100% of our Shiraz and 100% of our Pinot, and we're talking hundreds of tons, will do all wild ferment, um, which, is, which is really cool. So, 
you know, wherever possible, we're trying uh, philosophically not to consume and consume and also to harness the power of Mother Nature rather than trying, um, uh, you know, trying to be flexible with it rather than rigid to it, uh, if you like. And so harness her power and let her do her work uh, to the wine, which is, I find that super exciting. It's like you've got to Very surrender exciting. yourself to power yeah 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 so that's uh that's the wild ferment piece and it's a real feature of our of our uh style and approach and i think the the best outcome it has different byproducts to commercial yeast and you see it in the wine and i think you know if you've if you've drunk a lot of um wild fermented wine you you, you can see the character but i i don't know how, i still don't know how to describe it other than funky or complexity or what do you well, how do you describe it i you know it tastes like an amazing chardonnay but I, I don't know that i'll have any idea how to tell you what what characteristics i'm getting are due to natural yeast versus man-made yeast um, yeah. I, I i tell you i mean just sitting here i'm just drinking it now um but but the one of the things that really strikes me and i think it's the same thing before that i liked is that you absolutely when you drink it your mouth is full like it is a very full, you know, and I'm going to say creamy, but again, it's not crazy mallowed, but it's a very full texture, but, but then it just, I don't know, it, it turns to water. It's a, it's, it becomes very light and very crisp and refreshing all in the mouth. And it's, it's very interesting. It's I'm maybe not describing it well. <laughs> no, but you actually are. I reckon it's perfect description and, and the words don't matter, but you're creating that sense, which is exactly what we're trying to achieve. And, and think of wild game. So you're, let's say we're chewing on a bit of uh, eel or a rabbit and it's, it's drying out your palate as you eat it because it's so lean and dense, unlike farm meat. And so you want, that, you want that slipperiness, that lusciousness, that fullness, but with any food wine, you don't want it to overwhelm the, right. the food. So that lightness that you're talking about on the finish and that freshness of acid is, it's all absolutely as we want it. We want that slipperiness to work well with the food, but we don't want it to dominate the food and we want it to slide away. Um, and that's where we're working really hard to get that full spectrum. But in the full spectrum fruit, we're weighted to the citrus end, you mm -hmm. know, and these, although we can achieve that fullness that you're talking about and describing through Lee's contact and uh, other little tricks. I'm not going to reveal everything, but uh, but then yeah, you want it to. You don't want it to be that just that big, you know, the cage fighter kind of version where you've got right. that big malo and that right fruit. If our another way I've described it to people is if our wines were a banana, it would be a banana with a green tinge to the skin, not a banana with a brown tinge to the skin. Absolutely. So it's got that fresh raciness, not that overripe and sweet uh, fruit. So anyway, it's a, it, we walk on a tightrope. It's, it's, it's a fine line and these are fine judgments. Half the people I speak to think I'm mad, but you know, the, what, the way you described it then was bang on because it's, and these are these fine little judgments we're making in the blending and you know, the, the idea behind the wine, uh, you know, that's exactly as we want it. Well, you're crushing it. I appreciate it. This is great. Um, well, golly, I, I appreciate your time very much. I know I've gone a little bit longer than, than I signed you up for. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for coming from Australia to talk to me first thing in the morning for you. 
Um, is there anything anything I might have missed outside of people try these? We'll tell you later how to try them. But is there uh, anything that we've missed in the foul story? No, look, I mean, I won't bore you with any more. But I'll tell you <laughs> what, one thing, we are open. I want you guys to all come down here when we get open again. Uh, I think the, the thing that, um, the only thing I get uh, upset about is that uh, the full extent of Australian wine is not fully understood around the world right now. Uh, every market. And it is a very exciting scene. There's some, there's some really, really cool stuff going on. So, you know, whether it's Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania, you know, give it a go, give it a try, spend a few bucks extra and watch the value. Um, you know, the, because there's some, there's some really, really beautiful sites and uh, clever people making great wine from Australia. And uh, I, think, I think you'll see it more and more. I reckon it's, uh, we're, we're, going, we're on a good, uh, a good trend right now, so. Well, I, I don't think that, I, I'm, I'm probably not the, the general consumer as far as a lot of that is concerned, but I feel like the, the air of critter wine stigma is kind of gone or going the way out. Like at this point, I think you still don't see Australia doesn't have a huge section in every wine list, at least in South Carolina. But I, I think that that negative stigma that was in the American mind for the longest is on the way out. Like when I see an Australian wine, it's like, oh, this is fun. This is exciting. What is this? Something I haven't tried. Yeah. You know? So, so yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think hopefully that, that, that kind of sentiment's washed away and there's a whole new generation of wine consumers, but the quality and the value is undeniable and uh, it just takes time for that to filter out. So yeah. we're gonna well, keep pushing. Thanks for your time, mate, appreciate uh, it. Thanks for your time, man. Cheers, thank you so much. All right, welcome to my Take 5 local restaurant segment with uh, <laughs> Take 8. Take 8. Um, I'm here with Christian Yemi from uh, Black Rooster which is about to reopen. Bourbon, which is about to reopen. Actually, by the time you see this, they might have already. We'll see. Uh, and then also, um, Farm to Table Event Company. Actually, there's so many different things that you do, FTT actually. FTT Productions and Honey River Catering. And Honey River Catering. And the Charitable Plate. And the Charitable Plate. Uh, I will say that um, I'm not gonna ask any of the same questions, but when this was still in audio version, I used Christian for my um, over the phone take five segment, which yeah. was episode 10, feeling peckish with Keith Peck from Akitime. So go back and I can't link it because it's not on YouTube, but go back and check that one out. Um, we talked about everything from the perfect way to drink bourbon to Taylor Swift's greatest hits. Yes, <laughs> I forgot about that since I don't know too much so, about yeah, her greatest yeah, That was the quickest question. Yeah, I think, it was. Um, but, uh, but anyways, so this is the perfect episode. I thought as soon as Matt told me that he was willing to Zoom a podcast with me, I thought about this for several reasons. One of them is the farm to table connection. So, uh, so Matt, when he was talking last night, because this I actually just interviewed him last night. People are watching. And we together. still plan to go to Australia to do an outdoor cooking event with him. I he would love that. Yeah. And and I plan to get tacked on somehow. Um, You'll be our our special wine consultant. That's, I'll take that. Yeah. yeah. You know when you go to you can't his, do it without his you. own winery, he definitely needs a consultant. Did, there. I have, well, <laughs> you know, um, but. That's uh, legit. But so again, farm to table um, event company, 
was I think where the marriage initially happened and the first yeah. time that I met Matt was probably the same first time Christian met Matt I'm yep. not sure it was last year we, we all had dinner at Lula Drake and also Vanessa was there um, who again is your partner yep um, so anyways that was a long way of coming about to say and I think this is a perfect episode <laughs> to have you on so no, thank that you was so succinct. much that was really <laughs> that's, that's that was, exactly what I yeah. did um, a very Hemingway <laughs> uh, and, and the other thing that I want to say is that uh, when I was talking to Matt now, every single winemaker, I think, says, uh, I make this wine to go with food. And, and they're all being very honest, because that's true. Wine yeah. is for food. Yeah. But talking to Matt last night, he definitely, um, he has the farm-to-table line, which he says, this is what I wanted to make to go with farm food, you know, poultry, a cow, you know, whatnot. And then he has um, the ladies that shoot their lunch line, which yep. is, it's a little higher tier and absolutely fantastic. But the whole idea is game. So everything yep. is game. to go with game because game has a very different uh, pairing restrictions, different fat content. And he goes into, I mean, you just watch, he goes into a lot of it. Yeah. But the whole time he was talking, all I could think about is every farm-to-table event at City Roots where you walk in and, and some carcass has been smoking all day long. Like everything is, I mean, really, what do you call it, tail to snout or something like that? Sure. Or, Nose to snout. Rooter to tutor. Yeah, rooter to, <laughs> rooter to tutor. Um, but yeah, it, 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 the whole time I was talking to him, I was thinking about y'all. So thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Let's get to the actual questions. This is a very good, um, it's, a, it's a nice, it's a bracing rosé for breakfast. That's, that's the type you want. I like it. You know, it's funny, it's yesterday when I did it, because Australia, he's the furthest yeah. one away I've done yet. So I did it Pretty at much 7 the other o'clock side of last night, and I'm like cheersing, and he's got like his Starbucks cup, and like, uh, oh, I forgot, oh, yeah. sorry. Uh, but we have five questions. All right. And they're the questions. Hugh Jackman. They're not those questions. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, question number... Oh, yeah, mix them up. One. <laughs> All right. This question is... Oh. This question is called... I wrote two Hugh questions, Jackman. number one, just in case. Okay. Uh, it's, it's called uh, farm to table. So I, obviously yeah. everything we just talked about what farm to table is. Uh, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit more about COVID time farm to table because I know you've always had your everything that you do both with all the groups but also bourbon and everything that you've done here for years is has your finger on the pulse of local farmers and this and that. Correct. How are they doing now? Where are what's what's happening? A lot of them have uh, have transitioned into selling directly to the public through uh, co-ops and um, you know the monthly or weekly baskets and things like that uh, because basically restaurant and catering uh, operations just went dark on them. You know we did too. Uh, as we've gone through this summer and have picked up a few catering jobs or done some private dinners, we've we've gotten some things from our farmers, but for the most part. Uh, all of them are, are trying to find other avenues for the time being. So, you know, we had thought about doing the, you know, the market type thing at the restaurant where our farmers would be able to get together. But then you would just, you know, as soon as we thought of that, we thought about that at about the same time we were thinking about reopening the first time, which was June 15th. Mm -hmm. And June 13th, when we held our little meeting, that, that was when one of our, you know, employees, you know, is two hours after we got done with our, with our you know, initiation meeting uh, about reopening, they texted and said it just tested positive. And we were like, we just shut the whole thing down. So calling together our farmers to do a market, even if it was outdoors at one of the restaurants, still was a social distancing issue that we just didn't want to subject anybody to. So we, you know, 
we've been in communication with our farmers, but we we haven't been getting much from them. So a lot, you know, a lot of our farmers. Um, I, I think it may have been a good thing for a lot of them in that they were, instead of, and it may not be that great for us down the line, but I think what it did is it it pushed them very quickly into the social media world and how to market their, their wares to the general public right. instead of calling the restaurants and doing bulk orders of 20 to 30 pounds of something they were having to figure out ways to do to get their product out there so maybe in the future they'll be able to do so maybe in the future yeah like exactly yeah. yeah so maybe so hopefully for some of them that'll be a, a good thing in the long run well here's something yeah honest. yeah um let's go to question number two although i do want to mention this because i uh, you know, not not kissing your ass because you're the one sitting here right now, but but literally, and I, I want to say it was March. I have no timeline of anything. I don't either. Anything <laughs> but I remember um, I, they had us initially just to be able to still pay to do something. We were going to grocery stores and stocking wine. And, right. And thank you, RNDC. Very much appreciated to have a job. Uh, <laughs> but I was with Caroline Taylor, one of the other reps, and we were just you know it was so long ago that we we're like so next month when everything opens back up. <laughs> yeah. But we were just asking each other, what is the, the first bite of something? What's the first restaurant you're going to go to? And, like, without even thinking about it, and I say this all the time, but it was the Lamb Burger. Yes, you knew. <laughs> I knew. It's the Lamb Burger. That lamb was, like, burger. sitting down at Bourbon, having the, the triple B special, you know, the burger, the bullet, and the, the, the beer. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, – I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm so looking forward to getting to do that again. Yep. But, so are we. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, all right, question number two. This is called Story Time. So story time. So I just want to know, you have years and years in restaurants. Um, give me, um, what, is, what is one of your favorite, maybe most funny stories uh, that has occurred in your presence over the years? Oh, wow. Okay, this one, here's one. It's a little bit mean, but it's kind of, it was hilarious and it was very indicative of kind of how we set the restaurant up at the time and so this goes back to Mr. Friendly's days this is probably our first within the first year maybe a year and a half of being open and we were open we had opened for dinner about a month after we opened the restaurant so that was we opened in March of 95 we started doing dinner in April I think and yeah, it was about a year later is when we, we broke into the second space between mm -hmm. us and what was then Sneakers and became Durkin's. Um, and we were busy. Like, it was a very busy restaurant. We would be on about a two-hour wait on any wow. given weekend night. And I stepped out of the kitchen momentarily during a lull. We had cleared the board, and orders were starting to trickle back in. We were on a... Oh, it had to be at least a two-hour wait. And we didn't take reservations. You know, we, I, I don't think they still, I still don't think they take reservations there. Uh, and that was, there was a reason for that. It was such a small restaurant that we had to turn tables. I could, we couldn't afford to have a table sitting for 15, 20 minutes, even, you know, longer, waiting for somebody to come and be seated. And so I walked out to look at the, the host sheet to see kind of what, how much how many more people we had so I could go back in the kitchen and like prep anything that maybe we'd be running short on 
because we kind of had a lull there. So I step out there, and this imperious 60-something-year-old white guy steps up, and I look up and I said, can I help you? And he goes, uh, yes, reservation for Dr. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, uh, we don't take reservations. Uh, so, but I can put your name on the list. You know, we're on about a, right now it's dropped down. We're probably on about a one hour wait. And he looked at me and he said, do you know who I am? And like, I have no patience no idea. for that sort of shit. So he said, so I looked at him. I like, I made a point of like looking at him, <laughs> like look, checking him out. And then I, I kind of stepped back and I went and I, and I turned to my staff because, you know, right in that area is the wait oh, station. Oh, this is great. And there were like three of my staff standing there and they were like getting waters and filling teas and pouring cups of coffee. And I said, hey, 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 guys. I said, do any of you know who this is? And they all like looked at me like, what? And I said, this guy right here. And they all looked up and they looked at him. And then they looked back at me and they all kind of shook their heads. And I go, we have no idea who you are. So you can give me your name and I can put it on the list and you can wait. Did and he, he wait? <laughs> and he harumphed, you know, like, Ugh. and um, And then he actually looked at me and he said, well, I know Christian. Oh, that's great. I was like, do you? He goes, yes, I know Christian. So he, had, he would see me immediately. And I said, uh, well, if you really know Christian, you would know that one of the things he tells his staff all the time is that he wouldn't even give his mother a table ahead of anybody else. And she almost died giving birth to him. So I don't see how that plays for you right now. And he got really pissed off. And he said, and he turned around and looked at the rest of his group. He says, we're getting out of here. And he started to walk out and they didn't move. <laughs> they just stood there. And his wife go, walks up and she goes, we plan on eating here tonight. So you just tell us how long it is to wait and where we can get a glass of wine. And I don't give a fuck where he goes. That's great. <laughs> I was like, first round's on me. And I ran over to the bar, got him a bottle of wine, and I handed him three glasses. And <laughs> that's perfect. It was that's, awesome. That's I just loved it. And then, you know, I think what it was... I, it was satisfying because it was like, this is our restaurant. This is, you know, we, we're going to do things our way here. And it kind of set the tone that my staff didn't ever have to worry about if any imperious jack-off came in again and tried to bully them into a table. Yeah. That that's not how it works here. It's a very democratic system where your name goes on the list just like everybody else. So, yeah. So it's a, it's a mean story, but it was really a funny and kind of... I think one of the... Yeah. I mean, I, I don't own my own business, but I think one of the things that I would want about my owning my own business and maybe one of the reasons people do is so that, you know, this is, this is my world. I'm going to describe, you know, and that works, rules, you know. And it really works well if you, there are, let's face it, we all know of people who do own their own businesses that take that to a bad extreme right. and are just jerks. Yeah. But um, that's very different than just, yeah, they don't the usually last long. So, yeah. yeah. So that was a good one. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was, that was a great, that was a lot, that was a lot of fun. Thank you for that. Oh, this is a great one. This, this, this interview might turn out to be longer than that. Uh, <laughs> all right, question number three. May the force be with you. So, first of all... Of course there's a Star Wars Yes, there one. has to be. All right, first of all, spoilers. Oh, second of all, I'm wearing my... This is... I'm wearing my Star Wars. This is... The, I only got one year out of this. I'm usually, for Tiki Week, wear my Gumby yes, shirt. Right. This is my new Star Wars um, yep. Tiki Week shirt that I look forward to getting to actually use again. 
here in a couple months. But um, spoilers, if you haven't seen the last Star Wars, it's been like eight months, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. Um, but here, here's my he thing. He knows how it riles me up. <laughs> so so back, <laughs> back story on this, when um, uh, uh, The Last Jedi, God, I can't think of the names of the movies. When The Last Jedi came out, I saw it two that or three the times. The last yeah, one? that's the second to last one. So, so I saw it a couple of times in theaters, and I was forgiving of some of the things that I don't love about it. But there were, and I still maintain parts of it that were very enjoyable. The whole was amazing. Um, but, but so I was kind of still in the, like the psyched mood, and then I was waiting at Lens Crafters or something one day. And you and I text for like 20 minutes, and over that time, <laughs> you completely changed my opinion of the movie, destroyed it for me. Sorry. I go back, it's, I mean, it's accurate. Like, I wanted to walk out. You know, Ghost Yoda, Floating Leia, like there's a lot of things in there oh. that, that were just horrible. Leia um, Poppins? Yeah, yeah, what was that? Um, but but um, I, I don't think that we've had a conversation since December when um, Rise of Skywalker came out. Yes. Uh, so no. my question was, which I, you, you can't ruin it for me. I loved it, but my my question is, um, Rise of Skywalker. What are your thoughts? And if you could change one thing in that movie that you wish they had done differently, what would that be? Oh, I don't know because I can't, I'm, I'm having a hard time recalling everything that was in it. They packed so much into it. Um, I can't honestly. I can't tell the two apart. Uh, certain aspects of it because I don't watch it as often I watched it once I went to the theater and saw mm -hmm. it um, like I said uh, Last Jedi I almost walked out on I was I, I gave an audible groan to both the flying Leia and and then I actually said out loud in the theater I was like Ghost Yoda are you fucking kidding me like where was he when all the, the other whole time right? when all the other shit was going down Ghost Yoda just finally decides to show up then this, this whole thing could be over if Ghost Yoda had just shown do you, up. Do you know that there's an answer to that, though? In, what is in the, the answer? In the, boards? the answer is, is that island, the Jedi Island, there's a confluence of the Force, and so it's very easy for him to show up there and have lightning powers, and he couldn't do it in the rest of the world, is the oh, answer. Okay. Not a great one. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so wait, the last one, is that... Uh... So the last one is the one where the Emperor is actually the bad guy in charge. He comes back. Yeah, yeah that's kind of one of the... That was the part... Okay, so yeah, that... Was that the thing? That's the thing. Okay, I will yeah. agree that that part of it was... I thought they could have done that better, but overall, we walked out of that one, and we're like... That was enjoyable, but yeah, that 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 whole battle scene at the end between him and... and that one yeah, was... La that was lacking. Mm -hmm. So otherwise, I, I liked the rest of it. Um... For the most part, yeah, I, I liked it. Because the reason I liked it is the reason I think a lot of people hated it, which is it was straight up fan service. It and was. I'm a fan, and I love fan service. Well, can, I wanted can, that. Yeah. That's what I wanted. After Last Jedi, I wanted some fan service. I wanted like I'm not a huge fan. I'm not definitely like you're a ten. I'm like a, thank you. I'm like a two or three. <laughs> you know, I've enjoyed them over the years. I remember standing in line to see the first one um, at the local theater. Uh, and the second one, and the third one. So, I remember uh, in my elementary school, uh, they put on a, a Star Wars play. Uh, so, yeah, I, I go way back. I'm that old. But I'm still like a three. Yeah, fair like, enough. I watch them all, but I don't. I never owned a figurine. Or a lightsaber. 
Thanks. <laughs> you're I'm, a, I'm very you're proud a, of my lightsaber. You're saber. a 10. Thank you, thank you. You're a 10. All right. <laughs> I, I look up to you in that aspect. Well, thank you. The force is strong with me. <laughs> it is strong. Question number four. <laughs> Question number four is called, Welcome to the world of tomorrow. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> little future on before you there. All right. Um, it's a much funnier question than the actual question, but uh, so uh, what does the restaurant scene look like to you in one year from now, five years from now? Like, how, how do you think it, and I know it's just conjecture at this point, but how do you see us bouncing back? One year from now, I'm hoping that it will be, that we will have that sense of normalcy we had before. Um, and five years from now, I, I hope for the same. Mm -hmm. I, I hope for, if this ever does happen again, that there's a much better initial response to it uh, than there was in this one. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's disconcerting to watch, you know, pandemic movies, or documentaries that were made in 2017 and 2018 saying that we were way past due and that what was gonna hit and we, Botched this yeah, one so yeah. poorly, so so badly. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, a year from now, and this isn't a political thing by any stretch of the imagination. Right. It's just literally, I hope this, I hope this one burns itself out enough to where we have, where everything's normal again next year. I think we're all going to be a lot quicker to respond to it mm -hmm. next time around. Now that we know what what it takes, uh, and. Five years from now, I'm hoping for just more of the same. What I'm, what I'm cautious, which I'm cautiously optimistic about, is that more restaurants will survive this than fail. But the longer this stretches on, the more that are going to fall off. I think it's going to be a. I think the graph for this is going to be as far as failures go. I think the longer this goes off, the more that curve is going to just shoot. Right. Skyward, almost like the you know the pandemic did in midsummer. I just think that so many restaurants right now are are reaching their final that 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 the fi it's the final countdown for a lot of restaurants. Get that out of your head today. Nice. Um, as they run out of cash reserves, as this drags out longer and fifty percent capacity is in place and all that you're just gonna see more drop off. Right. Um, right now we're just seeing a lot of, uh, in South Carolina we're seeing uh, alcohol licenses being due right. for restaurants that aren't even open and can't use it anyway and at 50% right. are gonna lose a ton of money if they try to open. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, QSRs and fast food places are, are killing it right now, but the independence, the independent restaurant scene, which is more about an experience Right. An overall experience, food, wine, decor, service, all those things. It's like it's a gathering place. Nobody goes to their local QSR to gather with friends. Nobody says, hey, let's get together tonight and go, you know, have... See, this This is my fears because I, I, all I keep going back to is Demolition Man. And let's yeah. go out and have a Taco Bell fancy dinner, you know. Yeah. Like, that's just it's not gonna my, happen. my greatest fear. Yeah, know? well, that's not going to happen. We, I don't feel that we're going to... Uh, what what would end up happening instead of that is that people would end up gathering in homes instead. Uh, 
so independents right now are at the most critical juncture ever. So what I worry about is that a year from now, if we get back to some normalcy, there are going to be a lot of real of your favorite places are just not going to exist anymore. Yeah. And those people who own them are going to be in dire financial straits just due to the uh, the financial obligations that come along with the restaurant. I'm sorry, I my phone turned on. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping for normalcy in a year and complete normalcy both with, with that ability to react to something like this on our part and on our on our government's part. Yeah, everybody's so, part. Yeah. yeah. I agree. That's 100%. Yeah. This is like getting attacked by, this is like getting attacked by, a, this is like Pearl Harbor in, in disease form. Like you, okay, we were vulnerable and it happened. Now it's time to. Now we know. Now we know. So now is the time to build our, our reinforcements so that, the, that this can never can happen. It can never happen again. Yeah, you know that's exactly divert one percent of the defense budget just to pandemic, and we could probably kill this. Yeah. Well, we have arrived at question number five. Already? Question number. <laughs> I can't believe you're still hanging on. <laughs> this one will be really good. We promise. <laughs> question number five. I'm going to leave up to you a little bit. It is called stick the landing, which is where I always just say, "Tell me about." Yes, we made it. Tell me about. Um, Generally, it's tell me about your restaurant and what's special and what separates it. But you have so many different facets of what you do. So um, pick uh, maybe rooster, bourbon, catering, and tell oh, us I think what all makes of them, it so special. I think what I think the common thread among all of them is that it's been a every one of them has been. Uh, although each one is a completely different personality as far as the restaurant goes, there is an underlying character to all of them. That is, you know, we're we're local. We source locally. We give back locally. Um, we we're a good place to work. Um, when I first uh, when when we first opened Mr. Friendly's back in '95, it was a reaction to what where the pl the places we had worked before. So it was, it was counter to that. It was a place where we wanted to work, where like if we were an employee, we would be happy there. And that was our key, that was our just, our whole modus operandi was, look, we wanna work, we wanna own a place where we would wanna work. Mm -hmm. And that's been it for all the places. Like every, every one of them has been that way. And each one has had its own distinct identity as far as like the food it serves and everything like that but like I say the characters always remain the same Love you that. can kind of I, all of our longtime customers that's the one thing that they'll come back and say is that there's a there's a personality to the restaurants and the great thing about it is that a lot of that you know like like Mr. Friendly's the great thing about that is that you know Ricky kept a lot of the personality of that restaurant mm -hmm. the same you know, he brought his own thing into it, but um, he and Harold kind of kept that same, you know, kind of uh, vision for what the place was to be. And now, you know, Laurel and Jackson and Jason, you know, purchased uh, Gervais and Vine recently, and they bring that kind of, they bring that to that place again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's, you know, it's uh, it's nice to see that, that that's, 
you know, we, we still like to we still like to refer people to those places because we still feel like that's all part of the family still, regardless of right. whether I'm an owner there or not. It's still part of the whole family of places. So I think that's what kind of makes our places, I think, special. So, I guess. So Did I stick the landing? I think the landing has been stuck. All right. Oh, shit, look at that. I got a 6.7 from the Russian judge. <laughs> Jesus. So, um, I don't know if I said it in this take or the one before, but the farm-to-table wines that Matt Fowles does is the official house wine for both farm-to-table catering company um, and uh, Honey River, correct? Well, farm-to-table, so it's now F2T Productions. F2T. So F2T Productions, basically what that is, is that is our production company that puts on the events like Great American Whiskey Fair, um, the farm dinners, the uh, Main Gras. Street dinner. Uh, no, not Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is its own. That's, oh, okay. that's uh, the Crew de Columbia. Yeah. Um, the all the beer, different beer festivals that we do, the Tiki Fiesta. So it's, it's the production of those events. That's F2T Productions. And because it was getting so confusing with doing catering under the, that banner, mm -hmm. we broke them into two separate companies, and now we have Honey River Catering. So that's a that's a basically our all local catering company. Gotcha. Well, that's who you need to book with to try some of this delicious wine. HoneyRiverCatering.com. And I'll tag that everywhere. I'm sure. Um, other than that, thanks so much. Very much Thank appreciate you. your time. Yeah. And and nothing like morning rosé. Bourbon and Black Rooster. Our opening back up. For Our plan is to reopen uh, the week following Labor Day, so it will be a very quiet opening. Don't show up like on Tuesday after Labor Day expecting us to be open, but maybe Wednesday or Thursday our, our doors, although our doors will be open, we will not be seating inside. We will be seating outside only, and here at Black Rooster we'll, be seat, we'll probably be taking reservations for the outdoor tables out along the front and uh, the rooftop will probably be a first-come, first-serve sort of situation. Uh, until we figure this out, you just have to be patient with us, please. Uh, bourbon will be all outdoor seating. We're reserving the indoors in case there's a downpour, like there usually is in Columbia around this time of year, so that uh, if there is a downpour, we can move everybody inside to socially distanced tables, and it doesn't make them have to pack up their stuff and run to their car. So. We're going to stick with that for a little while until we kind of figure things out. So just be patient while we figure this shit out. Perfect. I appreciate it. Good cool. luck to you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Another episode down. Thank you so much to so many people. So let's get started. Um, the Society of Wine Educators, thank you for allowing me the usage of your maps on the program. Robert Gardner, obviously, thank you so much for your beautiful music, for my intro music, from your album, Soul of Confidence. RNDC, my employer, thank you for letting me get in touch with all these cool wine people. Jack Larkin, I haven't talked about you yet. Jack Larkin was on my audio-only podcast, episode 8, called You Don't Know Jack. And he's the one who actually hooked me up with a lot of amazing wine people who've been on the show, not to mention Matt Fowles in this episode. Thank you to Matt Fowles. Um, please try his wines. They're delicious. Uh, and thank you to Christian for your time. You know, if you haven't checked out, if you live local and haven't ever been to Bourbon, um, when they reopen, that's somewhere you definitely want to be. And obviously Black Rooster's new restaurant. Um, so many cool things going on there. Um, thank you so much for listening, you at home. Uh, if you're watching this, um, it's also available in audio. If you're listening to this, it's also available also available on YouTube. Please click the little face logo right here. 
uh, to subscribe, um, share my posts, follow me on Facebook and Instagram, tell your friends, uh, drink some delicious wine. Next week we'll have Ian Birch, winemaker from Archery Summit in Willamette, uh, Oregon, uh, who is also a great pleasure to talk to and amazing wine. So uh, see you next week. Till then, chin chin. Pew.